Dotnet Rocks episode 709 with guest Alexander Gross. Recorded live Thursday, October 6th, 2011. This episode is brought to you by Telerik and by Franklin's.net, training developers to work smarter. And now offering video training on Silverlight 4 with Billy Hollis and SharePoint 2010 with Sahil Malik. Order online now at franklins.net. And now here are Carl and Richard. Thank you very much. Welcome back to .NET Rocks. It's Carl. It's Richard. It's good. It is good, isn't it? Life is good. Oh, I'm, I'm busy and working on fun things, and really, it's been a crazy time since Build, hasn't it? It really has. And you know, uh, well, your email that you're going to read is, we're really going to address this, but there's been some angst in the air, you know? Oh, yeah. Still, I thought there was angst before Build. I felt a lot calmer after Build, but definitely, you know, still going on. Well, the message maybe hasn't gotten out to the to the far-flung reaches of the earth about what Microsoft is doing. So, uh, but we'll, we're going to allay your fears a little bit. Let's get there. But uh, first, let's talk about Better Know Framework. So, are we doing HTML5? Are we doing yeah. WinRT? What are we doing for Better Know yeah, Framework? Yeah, I'm doing uh, HTML5. You know, I've been going through the new tags in HTML5 and yes. talking about them. Some of them are, um, you know, exciting, and some of them are just kind of mundane, but it's good to know that they're there. Yeah. And this is one of the latter. <laughs> <laughs> Awesome. It's one of the last ones that um that I'm going to talk about bec- that all browsers support. There's a few that are just kind of silly that only Opera supports or something, right. you know. So this is the time tag. Time. That's right. Time. T I M E. Not T H Y M E? No, that would be for a beef stew. Nice. Yes. I like a herbal tag, please. <laughs> Man, you're quick. So the time uh defines a time and date. Not just a time, but a date and time. Okay. And it's good to have these little micro formats. We talked about micro formats. Yeah, you know, with these, Emily. Right. These little markups that, so something that is trying to pick out the pertinent information in, you know, screen scraping your page can do so. Okay. So this is not my supply the current time. It's just a way to mark up. This is where the time and right. date went. Yeah, so, you know, the store opens every day at 9 o'clock a.m. Right. and closes at 5 p.m. Or, you know, this this particular page was created on, you know, time, and then you could say date time equals, and then you could have a date and a time. So there's a date time attribute, and there's a pub date attribute. The date nice. time specifies the date or time for the time element. And the pub date attribute specifies that the date and time in the time element is the publication date and time of the document or the nearest ancestor article element. And there's a little bit of, we talked a little bit about articles and and that kind of thing. Previously, yeah. yeah, Any formatting tricks built in? um, No, I don't know. Uh, If it's, you know, if it's like any of the other things in the browser, like all acceptable formats will be fine. Yeah. The the example that I'm seeing here at w3schools.com, which is where I found this, mm-hmm. shows uh, year, 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 dash, month, month, dash, day, day. That's the ISO spec. Yeah. I was thinking more about, wouldn't it be interesting if that tag actually localized to the browser's locality? Now that's just crazy talk. I know. I'm out of control. <laughs> you stop me. You got to stop me. Because wouldn't that be fun? I mean, you know, dates and times on the internet are crazy anyway. Yeah. Remember when someone tried to invent internet time where, where a day was a thousand units? Oh, really? Yeah, no. We, I, try, I honestly tried to work with this because, you know, I do a lot of multinational work. It's this whole, you know, think about how much of our lives, even this show here, where we're trying to figure out what time is it going to be for Alexander versus what time is going to be for you versus what time is going to be for me. And so the concept of the internet time was here's a thousand units and it's the same all the time. And so if we say we're going to meet at 343, that's the same everywhere. Wow. It's just that, you know, your 343 might be in the middle of the night and mine's in the middle of the day. Yeah. It's really, you got to really have that, you know, geographical quality. Nobody cared. Nobody used it. It died a horrible death. Well, Rich, before uh, I ask you to read that crazy email and we'll us to respond to it, it's not a crazy email. I mean, that the email that's, that everybody's, that we've been talking about here. Yeah. I just want to mention that, man, we had the Franklin Brothers CD release party here at the studio on the 30th. Woohoo! And the local paper, the New London Day, 
Because the song, it, the first song is New London Blues, and right. it's pretty, basically told from the point of view of one of the members of the Homeless Coalition in uh, in New London. And is it nice to have a coalition now? Uh, yeah, absolutely. You know, they they have voting rights and everything else. So, <laughs> so um, but but you know, we got interviewed, and they did a video shoot of the band playing the song, and Jay and I talking about it. So you can read that and watch the video at the day dot franklinbros.com and of course if you want to check out the cd which now has 12 five-star amazon reviews uh it's franklinbros.com all right richard who's talking to us well as you previously hinted we got an email from martin taylor all the way in aberdeen scotland a lovely place and the que- and it says, question to .NET Rocks, what does the future hold for Silverlight, WPF, and XAML developers? Hi, Carl and Richard. I've been li- a listener to the show since sometime in the 300s, and I love it. I run a small team of developers within a consultancy, and over the past two years, we've been developing engineering and line of business applications, leveraging Silverlight and WPF as UI platforms for their richness and ease of development. Mm. I've invested significant time getting me and my team's chops up with XAML development, including things like MVVM, Prism, and Expression Blend. They love it. And we're producing some of the best UI experiences any of us have ever produced in our lives. We have all this beautiful technology at our fingertips and have the promise of Silverlit 5 by year's end. Yet in a post-build world where Windows 8 is where things are going, there is a lot of FUD around Silverlight in particular. What does the future hold for Silverlight, WPF, and XAML developers? Cheers, fellas. Marty from Aberdeen in Scotland. P.S. Franklin Brothers is currently floating my boat with the new album. Awesome. And P.P.S. Send me a mug. I have friends in distilleries here. (laughs) Which is, you know, probably the most effective bribe he could come up with. Richard, I can't tell you how uh, this question is on everyone's lips all over the world. This is the quintessential email. What do I do now? Right? <laughs> I mean, this is the $64 million question. Yeah. And the answer is, and we do not work for Microsoft. Nope. We hold their feet to the fire when we need to. Listen up. This is it. Silverlight, WPF, all that, not going away anytime soon. Right. Windows 8 is a consumer-focused operating system. Unless this Metro thing that they've showed off gets out of the way on the enterprise, um, probably not going to be bought by the enterprise. Until well, and, and, those until app- somebody really demonstrates an awesome enterprise app that utilizes, I don't think there's a lot of energy around. That's it. correct. And, mm-hmm. you know, unless there's going to be Metro in the enterprise application wise and we're moving stuff over. So the desktop mode of Windows 8, even in the enterprise, runs everything that Windows 7 does. So, yep. And it runs it with less memory in a smaller footprint and faster with hardware acceleration. So even if you upgrade to Windows 8 in the enterprise, assuming that you can get around the Metro thing, there is no reason why Silverlight isn't going to continue to play the the central role in line of business apps. At the same time, looking at Martin's discussion of his consultancy, these guys sound like they're set to become Metro developers. Right. Because they know Silverlight. And, you know, your work on the wiki, metroapps.wikispaces.com, you've shown that the most compatible set of skills for building Metro apps is Silverlight. Yes. The classes overlap the most. That's right. Um, so if you're a Silverlight developer today, you are in the best position, and even better, if you're a Windows Phone 7 developer, you're in the best position to utilize your skills in, in a lot of your code in Metro. So if I were you, Martin, I would be stoked because you just got a whole new line of business. That's right. You can basically take all the software that you've built over the last 10 years and sell it all over again to a totally <laughs> new market. You know, granted that... You, granted that it's consumer oriented and right. you know it's going to work in the app store and all that. But I also think he's done the hard thing. He's already got the thinking around great user experiences that he's building in Silverlight and WPF and Metro is an extension of that. But that said, we can't iterate loudly enough. Silverlight 5 is coming out towards the end of the year, we think. Yep. And you know that it goes on. It's not going away. In fact, it's all. getting you, better. You can keep doing what you're doing. 
And you can add this to your repertoire if you choose. That's and the right. skills that you're building, if you're working in Silverlight, XAML skills, the C-sharp skills, all of those things port to Metro brilliantly if you want to do Metro apps. Right. It's new stuff. It's optional. It's not a requirement. So, And I will send a mug to Aberdeen. Absolutely. And so if you want a mug... Send us an email at .net rocks at franklins.net or write a comment anywhere on our .net rock site for any show that you like. Let us know what you like, what you didn't like, how we can do things better, what you're concerned about. We'll make shows around this. And by the way, Martin, we will do a show specifically about Silverlight in the context of build in the immediate future. Yes, we will. And we have some other tricks up our sleeve, don't we? We always do. All right. Stay tuned for that. Uh, let's introduce our guest today. Uh, Alexander Gross is a freelance developer and trainer from Leipzig, Germany. Since he was first introduced to .NET in 2003, he specializes in the core framework, getting a kick out of building back-end systems and improving development processes. Alex leads the .NET user group in Leipzig and is one of the organizers of the .NET Open Space Unconference that took place first in 2008 and today hosts about 175 attendees. JetBrains elected him an Academy Expert, similar to Microsoft's MVP program, in 2009 for his community-building efforts and constant feedback about JetBrains products. When he's not coding, he likes to cook and sharpen his Japanese kitchen knives. Ooh, Gotta like it. Well, if, if the whole uh, .NET interview goes south, we can always talk cooking. <laughs> <laughs> Tell me you're not sharpening totally. ceramic knives, because that'd be silly. <laughs> How's no, it going, you, wanna, you don't want to do that. <laughs> Welcome to the um, show. Thank you for having me. Hello, from Germany. Hey. So let's talk a little machine specification, or what do you call it, M-Spec? Yeah, that's basically the short name, but uh, the long name and also the package name of the NuGet package is machine specifications. So, you get. Uh, when you're when you're talking uh, via Twitter, you're limited to 140 characters, and you want to like shorten the names a little bit to have more space to say the important stuff. So, MSpec and machine specifications is basically the same, at least in the .NET world. Okay, what's it do? Uh, <clears throat> MSpec uh, is a behavior-driven development tool, so. Perhaps you can think of it like uh, N-units or X-units uh, tailored towards uh, behavior-driven development. So what you basically do is to write tests, but you don't write tests only for the sake of writing tests. You're trying to specify behavior of your system using the tool. And AppSpec is uh, geared to, towards uh, doing that by leveraging uh, natural language. So you have like a, a skeleton you always write your tests in. So every test uh, context, which we call, it's like the um, it's like the situation you get your system into, and every uh, context begins with a when. So basically you have uh, a whole lot of classes that begin with a when. For example, when a user registers on the site. And this is where you start out by um, thinking about your system, how it's going to behave when a user registers on your site. And then you write a couple of statements specifying what the, what the system should do when a user actually registers on the site. So basically, you say something like, it should send an email to the user. And it should create the user in some database. And um, it should perhaps create a user as an inactive user because the user has to activate the account later on. And if you think about these uh, things I was just talking about, it's like a little specification of a tiny part of the system. And MSpec gives you, gives you the opportunity to write these down in natural language embedded in C-sharp code. So you're writing a C-sharp class and... Uh, the sharp fields, basically. So you don't have to learn anything new, really. But then uh, when you go to the implementation, you have like the natural language skeleton and you uh, drive the implementation uh, of this particular feature from the text you, ju you just written. So all you have to do is basically write the same things you, uh, you've written down in English 
again in the shop code. So what does it mean that the user registers on your site? Perhaps some MVC controller action is invoked and mm-hmm. perhaps some database calls are carried out and so on. And um, basically this is the basic idea uh, behind MSpec that you uh, write down the system behavior before you actually code uh, the system. So this sounds almost test first like right. that you're you're writing essentially tests as specifications. Yeah, that's it. So it's like like uh, some people like to say that behavior driven development is test driven development done right. Ah, but nice. I only, heard that. Yeah, but it's not basically uh, it's not only doing uh, test driven development right, but it's also thinking about what you're trying to build and getting into a conversation with uh, product owners or product managers or even customers. And product managers, they don't necessarily speak uh, in controller actions or in uh, action filters to you, but they want, uh, they want to talk plain English to you or plain German or something else. Um, and as a way to communicate to them and with them, you're, you just take their words basically. <laughs> and form them into executable code, executable specifications. This portion of .NET Rocks is brought to you by our good friends at Telerik. Hey, can you ever have too many free tools to complement your development skills? I didn't think so. So our friends at Telerik are giving you now more than 30 free products for application development, automated testing, agile project management, and content management. And we're talking free-free. Not a trial, not a demo, but free, complete products supported by a community of over 440,000 developers at Telerik Forums. From free ASP.NET AJAX, ASP.NET MVC, and Silverlight controls, to the free ORM solution and automated testing framework, to free agile management tools and content management systems, all of these and more are available to you for immediate download at Telerik.com slash free stuff. Most of the free products can be used for commercial purposes and give you access to supplemental support resources such as documentation and forms. Go to Telerik.com slash free stuff now and take full advantage of the available free of charge products. And don't forget to thank them for supporting .NET Rocks. So how do we get from those specs to uh, classes and code that we can flesh out? So when you start out writing a specification... You just do what I just uh, what I just uh, described. You have your context when a user registers on the site, which is a class which is empty at first, and then you have uh, little fields. They are of type it, and in the it fields, you t- you write down what the sh- system should do. So you write. You're essentially mm-hmm. making that part of the nomenclature of the classes themselves. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's right. So. What you do, what you do is basically you take the sentence sentence and replace every uh, white space with an underscore. Right. And this is you can compile this to a C sharp class, and you do the same with the it fields. So you write down it, then a white space, and then should underscore register underscore the user, and so on. And when you start uh, writing a specification like this, you you can execute them, but of course, as these are tests these tests have to somehow fail. And when you just uh, written down a couple of specifications, uh, you get a, a lot of uh, not implemented specifications right. because you just stated what, is, what you want the system to do, but you don't have code uh, supporting the behavior. And when you, uh, when you started out with some uh, unimplemented specifications, you start by breaking the first unimplemented specification by writing the red specification or uh, by specifying how the system should behave uh, in assertions and of course because you haven't written any code the system doesn't behave the way you want it to behave and you get a, a failing specification and then you enter the normal uh, red green refactor cycle where you start out with a red specification you do implement the system's behavior to get the behavior towards green and then you re- rerun uh, your specification and then you try to refactor the code you've, you've just uh, written. And this is basically test-first development. Right. But, on, but on top of that, you don't only write uh, n-unit tests, 
but you write them in this kind of skeleton that MSpec provides. Right. So as I said, for every uh, behavior the system should have, you have a class, which is called a context. And in this class, you have the skeleton uh, of three or four kinds of fields you can specify. So perhaps you, you've heard about the arrange act assert cycle in test-driven development. So every test consists of three phases. Uh, first comes the arrange phase where you uh, construct a part of the system you want to uh, test. So basically you create a, a controller and you create some faked out database connection or something. And after you've created uh, like the little world around your test that you just need uh, to uh, to execute the, the test, you get into the act phase where you actually carry out the test. So, for example, you call a controller action on the MVZ controller you just created for the test. And afterwards, you assert how the system behaved. So, did it do the things it should do? For example, create a user or uh, send an email. And for all these three phases, arrange, act, and assert, you have uh, specific uh, delegate types in machine specifications. So the range delegate is called establish. And because it's just a, a delegate, you have to give it a name. So you create a field of type establish and you call the field context. So when you read the code, it, it, it says establish context and then it, uh, there's a lambda where you create the MVC controller, the database connection, the email center, and so on. For the range phase, we have uh, delegates called because and you name the field off. So if you read the code, it reads <laughs> because of. Yeah. And then there's a lambda that contains the code for the for the act phase. It's very clever. And then there are, there's the the it delegate that you name how the system should behave. It should create the user. And then you write a, a, a lambda method that contains the assertions like uh, database dot assert was called. And so on. So I, or it, user should uh, user is active should be true. Yeah, it's so, sort of BDD meets TDD. Is there an, is there <laughs> another name for what you call this amalgamation here? Um, it's called context specification, and it's not a term I coined. It's I believe uh, it was Scott Bellware. Okay. At least I've heard uh, I've heard uh, about context specification from from him. And yeah. <clears throat> also to state this very clearly, I was not the one to invent uh, machine specifications. Mm. Uh, it was Aaron Jensen, uh, right. who is based in Seattle, and he created the framework, and then I stepped in and created the runner for the Resharper tool for Visual Studio. Mm -hmm. And by now I've taken over the project to some extent because Aaron is more into the Ruby field right now. Well, that's great. So, so tell us a little bit about the popularity of MSpec. Um, I have, I don't have exact numbers. So, what I can say is that we have a couple of hundred downloads from NuGet. Uh -huh. So, you just install package machine dot specifications, and then you have everything you need in your project. And um, yeah, it's, perhaps we have one hundred or one thousand or even ten thousand users. I don't know. Uh, we have some support channels on uh, Stack Overflow, and there are some people uh, asking me questions on Twitter. So I believe we have a couple of hundred users at least. And uh, how long has uh, MSpec been around? If I remember correctly, Aaron created it in 2008, and he wrote a blog post about machine specifications where... He introduced the concept and I found it very intriguing at the time. And I was, at the time I was also reviewing, uh, TDD frameworks. Mm. So MSpec was basically on the top of my list. And then I, I stepped in and started coding, uh, the test runner support for Reshopper. And this is, this was my first, uh, real contact with the product. So and do you I work a lot with developers who use MSpec sort of as a consultant? Um, as, a, as a consultant, I don't... So, so some uh, customers I work with, they they have like uh, 
things like NUnit or XUnit already in their repository and then they don't necessarily like to switch. So what I try to do is uh, try to uh, try to uh, convince them to, to use an MSpec style with NUnit. And you can perfectly do that. So you can hmm. write uh, NUnit or even MS test uh, tests and have them look similar to uh, to MSpec. But uh, as I told before, you have to use a whole lot of a whole lot of underscores in your tests. And right, seems to me probably the the most challenging thing about it isn't using the tool, of course, but coming up with that design based on you know translating the the business domain, if you will, mm -hmm. into those yeah. into those classes. So it really really requires you to pay attention to the architecture. Yeah, you have to totally think about what you're writing. And On the other hand, this seems hmm? like a great place where the domain expert and the architect sit side by side, the architect doing the typing, and they're arguing the domain implementation. You mean the programmer and the guy who thinks he knows what he's talking about. There you go. Because <laughs> <laughs> that's um, what it always There is no domain expert. It's the, you know... It's the business guy. He, yeah. He's he's trying to explain it and trying to understand it. It's an old story. But it, mm -hmm. I just I like the really the the domain expert or the business guy could look at this and still make sense of it. I don't know that he could write it. Yeah. But he could. You know, they're they're English words and they sort of make sense. I don't know. Those curly braces get in the way of uh, understanding in and the semicolons. Lands. Yeah, and the semicolons. Yeah, but it, but it's. <laughs> But it's not really a problem because we have some great HTML reporting and ah. we, strip, we strip all the underscores and uh, semicolons and so on. We strip it from the source and you get a really nice uh, looking HTML report. So this is what you can give to the to the business guy on the other side of the room. I'm being a little <laughs> funny too, you know. I mean, I I I give uh, I honestly give business people more credit. So do you have any pointers for developers who are trying to do this by themselves without the help of a domain expert in coming up with uh, the right architecture? Uh, you can use uh, MSpec on several levels. So you don't necessarily have to use MSpec on a, like a high-level behavior, feature-driven uh, point of view where you start really uh, thinking about how the system should behave. You can do that with MSpec, but you don't have to. You could uh, very well start writing your unit tests in MSpec because, after all, it's the same uh, pattern that you use. You specify not how a system behaves, but how a unit behaves. So if you have uh, just a single class and you want to write some tests for it, you can totally go the uh, context specification route. Um, what I found is, especially when developers or customers of mine have started uh, writing unit tests, they perhaps start with MS, uh, MS test or NUnit, and somebody told them to put it to put the test in the method that's annotated with uh, the test attribute, and they they start with this blank method, and they have. Perhaps uh, they don't have really an idea what to put inside the method. Mm. Perhaps somebody told them about a range act and a third, but it's all—it's a blank sheet of paper, and you don't really uh, have a lot of guidance in these frameworks how to write your tests. Um, and this is where MSpec can step in as well. So you can start writing uh, context and specifications for your units, and you don't need a domain expert for this. You can think about yourself how the class should behave in several uh, circumstance, circumstances or what circumstances you can uh, think of when you try to uh, implement a class. And I found it very valuable with customers who started uh, writing unit tests without having a lot of experience that when you start uh, using this, just a pattern that you have context and the specification for this uh, exact context, uh, that you can uh, write a whole lot of uh, better tests in the end that you also understand half a year later. Because right. I, I've seen tests that are called uh, test XML safe and store, or safe and load, I'm sorry, test XML safe and load. 
And I didn't know what test XML save and load does. And neither, neither did the uh, developer that wrote it a couple of weeks before. Right. So if you have uh, English language to support, support your tests and to support what you're trying to express with the test, then you uh, generate value not only for you, but your colleagues as well. You perhaps have to read the test after you left the company or years later. Yeah, that's the whole challenge here is we always presume too much knowledge when we write out our descriptions of things and somebody coming in new, it makes no sense. Yeah, exactly. Like the basic definition of all error messages, especially object not found. Mm-hmm. And uh, while you're talking about error me- messages, um, it's always a great pleasure to see a test fail and not only have the assertion fail with a some kind of a uh, of a of an exception should be true but was false but but also have a little text beside it that said uh, the user should be activated for example right so you can you can make a lot uh, more sense of the failing test because yeah I, I, it's always great when a test fails when it gives you some hint of why why it failed and what to do mm-hmm. you know I, I i think it's very frustrating when you get a test that fails and you're like okay why did that fail like what did what happened there and you got to sort oh. of drill into it. I li- I, mean, I really like looking at some of the examples here. The the text is very clear. Obviously, people have written these things to say, "I tried this. This happened. This is a failure." Mm-hmm. I'm just, you know, there's a lot of testing frameworks out there, Alexander. Like, how does this? Uh, I like the language, but what's distinctive about it? Why would people want this over any number of other things? And I'm thinking about stuff like Boo or even RSpec. Yeah, RSpec is basically, or the other way around, MSpec is basically a lightweight clone of RSpec. Right. So you could ri- write the same uh, specifications in RSpec as well. But at the time uh, Aaron uh, created MSpec, I believe he was he was used to RSpec already, but he missed uh, the same kind of expressiveness on the .NET framework, and so right. he created it. And uh, MSpec is not uh, good for every test out there. So if you think about um, um, perhaps combinatorial tests or n-unit test case where you can have like a several several um, values you want to push into the system and look how it behaves with 20, 30 different uh, values, then MSpec is not the right choice for you. But uh, for for all other uh, uh, specification types, you can uh, I would certainly recommend you to have a look at MSpec at least. There's always seems to be this balance between uh, simple enough that people will actually use it and complex enough that it will do and uh, provide for the tests that are that you need to do. Mm-hmm. And I would argue MSpec is pretty simple, so. If you if you stick to the to the basic uh, pattern I was talking about earlier, then it will be very naturally, very quickly, and you can you don't have to change your your mindset when you write tests because it's always the same and it always looks the same and yeah. uh, specifications will always be written down in the same way. So you really have to be used to lambdas, however, I think. Yeah, <laughs> you have to get used to. But, you know, that's a good thing. I mean, if it forces you to spend a few hours figuring out lambdas, that's a really good thing for you. Those are probably the best two hours you've ever spent for your career. Yeah, if, <laughs> if you don't, if you don't know lambdas, then, yeah, then you're going to have a tough ooh, time with ooh. this. I'd also, I'm, I'm really appreciating, again, looking at the syntax, that this is mostly about describing the scenario. There's a lot of context setting before you get to your when it cycles. Mm. Mm-hmm. So you know where you're coming from, essentially. You know what we exercised and why we did it, and you know then it gets back to the challenge of: Did you set up the right context? Are you doing the tests that matter? Yes, and what you also will find that is uh, that the code uh, exactly maps to uh, to the text you've written above the code. So if you find a failing test and then you you read the text, for example, the the assertion. It should do blah blah blah, and then you read the code, and the code and the assertion uh, text don't match up. So you you begin to ask yourself, so why why is it written uh, in this way? 
why did it fail? So right. you 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 specify the system behavior twice, once in text and once in code, and they have to match up. But right. I'm not uh, saying that you should use technical uh, language in your specifications because after all you perhaps want to show them to your product owner and he perhaps don't doesn't understand what throwing an exception is sure so when you write down the specifications you want to stick to a really natural language you for example what i do instead of uh, writing about throwing exceptions i always write down this specification as it should fail and that's something anybody can understand. This portion of .NET Rocks is brought to you by our good friends at Grape City. Tell me if this sounds familiar. Boss comes and says, sales are up this week. I'm taking everybody out to lunch. Awesome. Next day, uh, we're taking a loss. What happened? Well, you're a developer. You can create a report. So you go to your boss and say, okay, what should I report on? And they have no idea. Well, here's the good news. Active analysis from Grape City Power Tools empowers your boss, the money guys, so they can find the answers to their own questions. And the best part is, it's a control. Completely self-contained BI. Using a drag-and-drop interface, users can easily discover trends in the data, and more importantly, the deviations from those trends through its powerful graphical analysis capabilities. Development against the control is easy. All you have to do is provide the data. Active analysis will take care of the aggregation, grouping, filtering, and sorting for the user. Of course, it offers programmatic control of all these operations, too. So if you want more company lunches, do your boss a favor. Use active analysis. For a free evaluation, please go to gcpowertools.com analysis. And don't forget to thank Grape City for being a great sponsor of .NET Rocks. The thought I always have when I see things like this is uh, waiting for that day, you know, when a business person can just talk to a computer in some, maybe not a programming language, but maybe just plain English or plain language, plain speaking language, or maybe even talk, you know, maybe speech recognition. And tell it what the rules are and essentially come out with some kind of application you know sort of taking sort of taking uh, english translation speech recognition bdd tdd and code generation putting them all together in some kind of crazy sci-fi uh thing where you know a framework will spit out that just needs to be filled in so you're talking about light switch? Yeah, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> you didn't just say that, did you? <laughs> oh, yeah. I'm you sorry. know, well, light switch is, he's kidding, of course, because that's really for developers as well. But, um, you know, just getting, getting past the whole, I, what am I trying to do? Put developers out of a job here? I don't know. Yeah. Well, we keep, they keep talking about that idea, but it never actually happens. No, no. You know, I'm just always trying to clear the lines of communication between developers and business people because it's classic. That's where it breaks down, you know? You know yeah, I, be, I believe uh, the systems you are going to build are too complex to be um, generated from some gibberish the business person will uh, <laughs> Yeah, and there is the problem right computer. there. <laughs> gibberish yeah. that the business person is spewing out. There you go. Yeah, you, you also have to be very uh, precise describing a system like that. And that's what uh, developers are for. You're right. You're absolutely right. Well, and, it, and so. it's that process of demanding that specificity yourself so that you can you know, be successful that really uh, ultimately... You know, how many times are we actually reshaping a business? It's because we, in order for us to understand, we end up pointing to sacred cows in a business and saying, like, why do you do this? But, you know, how much of that is... You know, ultimately, it comes down to a business person says, when this happens, this has to happen. You know, or we want to... Let's say we want to have, you know, some sort of security or some feature that seems like fairly large... You immediately, as a developer, start thinking, okay, well, then I need to have, 
you know, uh, this process and part, you know, and this process, and you're sort of forming that architecture that how come those decisions can't be automated? That's what I'm saying. Is it ultimately you're talking to a business person and translating that into code as well? Yep. Yeah, but that's a, that's a cognitive feature. It is. It's true. Maybe you can walk us through this, Alexander. When you've actually, you're utilizing MSpec, are you sitting with a business guy wa- writing those initial, uh, d- assertions, like the descriptions of what the, uh, the application should do? Question. So, what I like to start out is, uh, a user story. So you have like a feature description of what you're going to build. And a feature description in form of a user story isn't really a specification. It's just a, a promise for a conversation in Scrum's terms. So uh, you're, you're trying to be uh, not too specific when you write down the, uh, the user story. So you have to sit down with the business person and work out uh, scenarios for these for these user stories you're uh, going to implement. And when you have to when you talk to them about scenarios, i.e., which contexts uh, will emerge from the user story, you you, you start think, thinking about a system uh, in context and specific actions that have to take uh, place in these contexts. And this is where you, where you can start uh, writing acceptance uh, tests in MSpec. So you talk to the business person uh, who comes from the user story level. So he's uh, perhaps very... Uh, He's looking from a high point of view, like a fifty thousand uh, uh, like a fifty thousand uh, feet view on the application, and you you uh, uh, you talk uh, about a specific feature, and you generate um, these scenarios, and you could write them down on paper and then go back into your office and uh, transform them into MSpec specifications, and right. these will become your acceptance criteria. So when these specifications turn green, you're done with the user story. Unless you haven't forgive, uh, forgotten. forgotten. Right. Not uh, that that I ever think. happens. Yeah, who would, who would that? <laughs> So, so uh, when you start out with these uh, high-level specifications, you can then uh, go into the, uh, into the nitty-gritty details of implementing classes and units and then you can uh, tackle the problem from a technical level, but you want to be supported by tests again. So you need a framework. And you can use MSpec as well, but you uh, tackle the problem from two different levels. Um, at first, you write the, the high-level uh, view of the how the application should behave, and then you write the low-level details, um, how the units should behave. And these can be MSpec specifications. Or you can perhaps use a tool like SpecFlow for the high-level specifications and MSpec for the low-level specifications. Right. Right. So you can uh, uh, go the route that Richard, no, that uh, Carl, I'm sorry, Carl was talking about earlier uh, where he was uh, referring to uh, talking to the computer so right. if you use Backflow, you just write down a, a, a document. And I think it, that's as close as you can get right now to uh, True. auto-generating solutions. So it is possible. Anything's possible. Just a matter of time and money. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Possible totally. versus reasonable. True. I didn't mean to derail this, the the conversation with that sci-fi, you know, conjecture, <laughs> but it is always on my mind when I hear about BDD and things like this. So yeah, it's not uh, that complicated. Actually. Yeah, it is. It's very complicated. It's no, precisely. It's <laughs> what's that? I think it's not compli- complicated because you're a business user yourself. Well, everything's right? easy when you have only answers, right? So it's just uh, a matter of. <laughs> Yeah, if you if you don't have the answers, you have to talk to the people who know the answers. That's right. Yeah. And this is this is what this whole process facilitates. You want to talk to the people, and if you, uh, for example, if you create scenarios or examples 
for a user story or for a feature, if you encounter uh, things that don't make sense, you want to talk to them. Sure. Unless unless you're just paid to build any system and you're not interested in building the correct system. Well, the thing is, often things make sense. They're just wrong. Yep. And we happily build it and find out later, no, that's not what I meant. Yeah. Yeah. So you have to work on your communication. Yeah, I think we go back. You know, my, I'm sort of measuring the success of projects by how far down the path of building it we were before we actually figured out what we were building. You know, this is reminding me of a Freakonomics radio episode I was just listening to called uh, Something About the Power of Quitting. You're or making the case for quitting. You know, the, mm-hmm. and Stephen Levitt, the author, says much of his success in in life and in economics and all that stuff has been because he quit. He uh, As soon as he knew he was going to fail at something, he quit. He quit it and moved on to the next thing. Because what happens is you start with assumptions based on the information you have. You get in the middle of it. The information changes, and that really has to change your behavior. And if it doesn't, what are you doing? Right? So know when to quit. <laughs> I'm, I'm not uh, for quitting. <laughs> Because uh, circumstances always change, especially right. in businesses. Well, that's what he means. There's no one to change, really, is what, what it comes down to in business. It's not quitting, of course, but when you're, when, you, you know, when you're going down one road and some information prompts you to make a, a, a decision, you really have to follow up on it. I mean, this is what we do as developers all the time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And if, if system behavior changes, you have to change the specification as well. Right. And, uh, as I told, as I told earlier, um, you write, you write your specifications always starting with a should. And a should is there, uh, to be able to question how the system behaves. So you're not stating that the user is created, but you're stating that a user should be created. How how politically correct. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> but it's uh, it's not written in stone if you write a should. Right. And the assertions map as well uh, to should. So all the assertion methods you're perhaps used to, if you use NUnit, you write uh, assert dot is true or assert that and then some funky syntax syntax. Uh, is dot true. In MSpec, we have uh, fluent specific, uh, fluent assertions. So we have a whole lot of extension methods that you put uh, at the end of what you're trying to assert. For example, user dot is activated dot should be true. So you you actually you have to write two shoulds. <laughs> One in the textual specific. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> So what's next for MSpec? What uh, what's on the horizon, feature wise, or so? <laughs> so right now I'm working on uh, separating the runner from the framework assembly because we have had some versioning issues in the past, and I want to get rid of that. So the, uh, there will be a new version that contains fixes. I'm releasing quite quite often uh, versions that contu- contain contributions from uh, uh, other open source contributors or contain some tiny fixes, but the next big thing will be the separation of the runner and the framework assembly. So you can uh, upgrade uh, MSpec to new versions and have still your old runners execute the specifications you, uh, you've written with new frameworks. You've mentioned runners uh, a couple mm-hmm. of times here, but I don't know as if we ever um, defined them. So, yeah, a runner is basically uh, one part of a unit testing framework. So you have the framework bits that contain things like establish, because, and it, or test fixtures and test methods in any unit. And then there's the runner part that executes executes these um, framework bits. So we have a runner for, uh, for console, so if you want to have a build script, you can invoke this runner, and then it will run your specifications on the console. We have support uh, for reshopper, of course. I believe 
uh, Just Code and Code Rush have support for MSpec as well. Mm-hmm. And there's um, testdriven.net uh, and Galio as a runner as well. So we have like all runners. Uh, we have a whole lo- a lot of runners that you can choose from. Okay. And you're going to be separating those is what you're saying next. Uh, yeah, they are separate right now, but there's a, like the, the core bits of the runner that are included in the framework assembly as, uh, as of now. And I want to rip them out so that we can ship a framework assembly that is very stable where just the bits are located that you really need to write specifications, but not to execute them. So we can version the, the runner assembly, uh, uh, separate from the framework assembly. Awesome. But, this is just internal stuff. <laughs> oh, that's great. Well, I wish you uh, continued success and and uh, and all that. It looks like great stuff. Yeah, thanks. So I will uh, definitely work. Uh, not, I won't stop working on MSpec in the near future, and I hope uh, we get a whole lot of new users and contributions from the community, which I'm really looking forward to. Definitely, definitely. Uh, Listeners, drop them a line if you have questions, suggestions, or anything else. Thank you very much, Alexander. Thanks for having me. And we'll see you next time on .NET Rocks. .NET Rocks is recorded and produced by Pwop Productions, providing professional audio, audio mastering, video, post-production, and podcasting services. Online at www.pwop.com. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter and offering custom on-site classes in Microsoft development technology with expert developers. Online at www.franklins.net. For more .NET Rocks episodes and to subscribe to the podcast feeds, go to our website at www.dotnetrocks.com. Got a transmitter van.